there have been few times I felt as confident and as silent as I was the few days going into October 17th. And one thing that I find incredibly valuable about that is the power that has lent me as this milestone has crossed. But the journey leading up to it is something that has changed me forever in a way I hadn't quite expected. I learned that there was a way to close the inner dialogue of my mind to explicit negativity in a way that I didn't think was possible before. And that in that silence, you can breed a kind of confidence that I don't think a lot of people have a proper understanding of because you don't really wrap your mind around it until you get there. And it was in that headspace that I spent day after day, step by step, knowing exactly where I was going and trusting with all of my heart that I knew that the path before me was the right one. And as I took those steps, silent and sure, I reckoned with the primacy of humanity and the power of our desire to succeed and our desire for purpose. And it was there, speechless, that I beheld the edge of the abyss. My name is Andrew McAllen. I'm a musician and athlete who geeks out on fashion, art, and great food. I spent time working with elite performers, repairing instruments for major symphony musicians, training for marathons, and designing wardrobes from everyone from freshman college students to big city lawyers. Trequartista is the Italian word for playmaker and is used to describe a particularly creative role on the soccer pitch, typically behind the central striker. And as the musical Trequartista, I aim to kickstart conversations about topics and areas that I think are underrated, underdiscussed, or particularly important to a sustainable high-octane life. This is the Musical Trek Artista, the podcast. Good morning, everyone. It's the episode I know a lot of people have been waiting for. Um, this is Andrew's Marathon Debrief. Uh, for those of you who don't know... Um, I ran the Des Plaines River Marathon on October 17th um, in a dramatic turnaround from a pretty severe injury that I uh, had in January, um, which I'll go into in a little bit. And then, uh, so after months of recovery and months of training, uh, I ran the Des Plaines River, River Marathon uh, last weekend with a time of 3 hours, 34 minutes, and 28 seconds, and um, placed second in my age class and 12th overall. Um, I think there were 206 runners that day. Um, and 
Uh, this is my first ever full marathon, which has been really exciting. I've done lots of halves and lots of races in between half and full marathons before, um, but I've never done a full one. And so in completing this uh, really exceptional milestone, I, I feel both humbled in what I've been able to ask my body to do and uh, grateful for the amount I've learned about what human beings are capable of and how to best coach myself and hopefully coach others through this process. Uh, before I go into some of these specifics for today, one of the things I really wanted to mention was how lovely the race day vibe is. And I don't get the sense that it's exclusive to this race either. And, and it, this is a good time to clarify that. Like, uh, the race that I went to was pretty exceptional. It was up in Vernon Hills. Uh, and it was really just kind of like a giant cookout with a marathon and an ultra marathon and a half marathon at it, which was really, really an awesome vibe. But, uh, I mean, the day was perfect. I mean, we were clocking at like 60 degrees and sunny and like not a cloud in the sky. And it was just a wonderful day to be outside. Um, but I had always taken it for granted how positive and how happy, um, the environment around, or like a 5k or a marathon is. And it's so cool to just see everyone so excited to see their person do amazingly that day. And the funny thing is, like, doing amazingly just means finishing. Um, I know there are a lot of people who get really competitive about these kinds of things, and I know I shared my stats at the beginning, and that's really exciting, but on race day, like, the only thing people care about is if you cross the finish line at all, not really when. And that gets really, really cool really, really fast because everybody just has so many smiles on their faces, and they're cheering for everybody and there's so much glee and so much joy and I wish I not only knew about that earlier so I could attend more of these and uh, make that more of a priority in my life but also uh, so I could encourage other people to pursue those more because I find that if people have more positivity in their lives obviously they're going to and take more enjoyment from it. And I think if more people went to things like this and experienced collective humanity and community in this way, we would live in a much happier, happier world. As I step off my soapbox, um, one of the things I wanted to talk about as far as like uh, reflecting mentally on, on the race was... Uh, the level of flow state I achieved. And um, one of the things that I think a lot of people misunderstand about running races like this is like, I don't know a lot of runners who like feel amazing the entire time they're out on the road or out on the trail. And uh, there's this misconception, um, even amongst people I know who do the physical activity thing or just like even go to the gym a lot, that's like, oh, it's always comfortable. Well, no, it's not. And I mean, that's kind of the beauty of it is it's a test of your mental strength of how much 
discomfort do you understand that you can achieve in a way that's still healthy and like not harmful to your body and a level of physical exertion to the degree of like running over 26 miles is definitely one of those things and you have to train up to that um, because there are discomforts before there is pain and pain is usually a threshold of bad things but discomfort isn't necessarily I find it to be much more of a threshold of tempering and if we think about tempering metal and the heat that it has to be uh, inducted to in order to uh, refine the metal into its purest, best form, um, that takes a lot of distress. And so I don't think we can talk about ourselves as complete human beings if we haven't experienced some form of stress. And the flow of the moment in something like a race like that where you're so focused on one foot in front of the other and not thinking about the other racers and just competing against your time I found myself in a very interesting state of presence where I wasn't really concerned about what was going on on the trail or the other racers around me, I was just concerned about putting one foot in front of the other and focusing on my breathing in a wacky, meditative, athletic uh, experience, I guess. And I found that that was an extraordinarily interesting place to be. Um, because I found myself appreciating the evolution of the human body in a way that I never thought I had. And this will give you a very interesting glimpse into where my brain goes. But um, I've, I'm somebody who enjoys learning about, like, obviously, science and biology. And um, one of the things I've picked up over the course of my life is that uh, bipedal um, organisms like humans uh, developed in such a way in order to uh, more effectively um, hunt and pursue uh, their prey when we were primal hunter-gatherers, um, but also to more effectively uh, escape uh, quadruped predators. So we think about things like lions and saber-toothed tigers and wolves and stuff. Um, because quadruped mammals especially tend to be sprinters rather than endurance runners. Uh, and so the ability for humans to run prolong the distances like 20 miles is actually uh, something that we adapted to in order to survive primally. And I don't think we really understand how amazing that is until we're in the throes of it and you're actually doing that thing. And it, it helped me feel so connected to the primal human ancestors in that I was tapping into something deep inside of the collective human genome that we had adapted and I believe has atrophied some. And I find it so fascinating that that, that ability is hidden within all of us and it's just a matter of whether we decide to pursue it and unlock it. Um, and it's, it just blows my mind. Um, and 
it was so interesting also appreciating how uh, different my training could have been or should have been um, compared to what I think a lot of other people do because a lot of people just get out and go run and then think like, oh, once I can run 26 miles, I can run a marathon. When quite frankly, I think hyper measuring uh, all of the things that you do going into it is actually a much uh, better way of doing things. So if we're going to get into the, as we get into the training side of things, I want to go over actually what my schedule looked like. So the physical training for this race, uh, I think looks a lot different than people expected to in that, uh, well, yeah, there were some weeks where I was pushing 55, 60 miles a week. Uh, I don't think I ran more than 23 miles at a time in order to allow myself to peak at, uh, race day fitness. And one thing that I think is important to note is because uh, there's a lot of folks who think like, oh, well, you can only run 26 miles if you've run 26 miles before, and that's just not true. Um, if you can run eight miles at a time, you probably have the fitness to run a half marathon. You just have to work up the discipline and the know-how to actually like go do it. Uh, because in the grand scheme of things, the cardiovascular fitness really is about the same uh, you just need to acclimate your joints and your muscles to the impact that they're going to take that day. And uh, if you can run a half marathon regularly, then running a full marathon is extremely within your reach. You just need to have a better idea of the way to prepare yourself gastrointestinally on race day figure out what recover works for you, and then, again, acclimate your muscles and your joints to the absolute pounding they're going to take that day. Um, when I finished my marathon, I caught my breath in about four minutes, and then uh, I stretched a little bit, and then I ached for the rest of the day, but I felt fine. Um, and I would have gladly gone on a walk um, or done a lot of other things if the folks I was spending the weekend with had wanted to. Uh, but we were all content to just hang on Sunday, and that was fine with me. Um, but I felt fine. Uh, and that's because the cardiovascular requirements, as I said before, are much lower than you'd expect them to be. To complete a race, you don't need to look like an absolute Adonis or like some Olympian that you've pulled from the fabric of the universe. I mean... Yeah, you're probably going to get that way if you decide to pursue um, running a marathon at an absolutely rapid pace. Um, but, I mean, not everybody's trying to qualify for Boston. A lot of people are just trying to finish. And if you're just trying to finish, finishing a marathon in seven hours, uh, that's finishing. Finishing a marathon in virtually any amount of time, as long as you finished, is finishing. And so, like, at the race I was at, I think you had 12 hours to do the whole course if you really wanted to. And I don't know of anybody that didn't finish. So uh, in terms of just completing it, which I would encourage people to attempt if that's something you've wanted to do, or even if you just want to look for a new challenge uh, mentally, uh, it's, it's a really, really amazing experience. And that's another thing to point out is this really is a mental challenge more than it is a physical challenge because you, like I said... It, that eight mile threshold is really the tough one. 
And if you can get over the eight mile threshold, you can definitely give over, get over the 13. And if you can get over the 13, then you can get over the 20. And if you can get over the 20, then the sky's the limit. Because at that point, you're just, you're just counting miles. And so uh, in terms of scheduling my training, I ran five days a week. Uh, and that seems like a lot lower than what people would think, especially with the intense personality that I have. I know a lot of people were expecting me to be running like 10 miles a day every day and never resting. And quite frankly, that's ridiculous. Like, never resting is the stupidest thing I've ever heard in my life. Because ain't nobody's body built to run eternally. And that's one of the things I really, really, really appreciated from this experience. The value of taking high quality recovery days and getting maximal sleep and really, really decompressing your body before bedtime is the most underrated thing on the planet. Because high quality sleep just helps you in every aspect of your life dramatically. But also, it just feels nice. It's so underrated. And there are so many people that are operating under this, like, I'll sleep when I'm dead mentality. And I know what that's like. I did it for a really long time. And it's just stupid. It feels gross. And then everything about your life gets worse because you're not adequately recovered and decompressed and then you get frustrated with people faster and you can't operate it the way you want to and you can't run as fast as you want to and the endurance thing becomes a problem and then you get concerned with like counting laps and being frustrated and not going fast enough rather than just staying in the moment where you want to be in order to focus on finishing the run that you're on and it just gets really frustrating um but so I ran five days a week um, I think my busiest week I did, yeah, so the, the biggest week of running that I did, I think was about 56 miles. Um, I did seven miles of sprints on Monday, rest Tuesday, because I'm usually, no, I rest Monday, um, seven miles sprints Tuesday, excuse me, um, and then light nine miles Wednesday, um, and when I say light, I mean the intensity of the run is not very high. Uh, not that, like, running nine miles is easy. Um, and then eight on Thursday, rest Friday, uh, 23 miles on Saturday, and then a pretty intense four miles on uh, Sunday. And that was a really tough week. Because all in all, it's just so much to do all at one time. And it's really difficult to reckon with, especially doing the graduate school thing at the same time, packing all of this into one week. I mean, for like 14 or 15 hours that week. It's just a lot. It, I mean, it was a part-time job. And so it's frustrating to do the amount of things that I do and try to include all of that at the same time. And I found it really difficult, to be honest. But uh, that's the beauty of planning all 16 weeks of your training is that you know when the busiest week is and you can accommodate for that and you know it often 10 or 11 weeks ahead of time. 
and then you can see when it lets up and you know when the race is going to be and so it makes the whole experience just that much easier to work into your routine because you can forecast it and plan for it and so when I had a concert the day of one of my what was supposed to be one of my longest runs I had two options I either include that super long run the day after when I'm going to feel pretty rough because of the concert the night before, even though I had was going to decompress as much as possible, or I try to include it days beforehand. And I actually wound up going with a third option. I broke it up into um, several smaller or one smaller run of about six miles. And then I added two miles here and there to all of my runs in the book ending weeks. And I actually found that to be a much better way of handling it because then I could walk into uh, my concert with uh, an adequate amount of decompression and feeling like I was really physically capable of delivering everything that I needed to deliver that day. And in exchange, I just had to add 15 minutes to uh, a couple of runs throughout uh, the other two weeks bookending it. And that was a really nice way of adjusting that. I don't know that that's normal, and I don't know that it would be effective to do that often during a training plan, but once in a while, I don't think it's a bad idea, especially to increase the intensity of a, a, a bunch of runs frequently. Um, as I've talked about before in uh, the Train and Volume podcast, the value of uh frequency of stimuli is often what accelerates our ability to improve because the message it sends our body is hey you got to be ready for this it's gonna happen a lot and our body can compensate for that especially if we've coached it into it, it being able to interpret the stimuli that we're sending it very effectively and the way we do that is through consistency and so um trying to keep uh, a similar running schedule as often as possible in as much as like maintaining a similar eating schedule and a same decompression schedule and a same sleeping schedule as difficult as that sounds and as pedantic as that sounds is one of the keys to success in this area and one that I found particularly helpful especially in the recovery stages um, and so uh, that super busy week that I outlined actually held true for most of uh, the weeks of my training. So I would have um, one day a week where I'd have the longest run, uh, and then right after that, a fairly intense active recovery run, and then a day of sprints and two days of like longer runs at a not-too-intense pace. And one of the things that I've distilled throughout this is you wind up sending stimuli through different exercises to your body into uh, a way that allows it to aggregate them later on. So you do the two really intense runs to tell your body, hey, um, we're going to need to operate at pace and you need to be ready to operate at pace for a while. And you develop those explosive muscle fibers and your body says, great, I know how to do this. And then you do the two medium uh, lightish runs in the middle of the week. Or I did them in the middle of the week. But um, those are the ones that tell your body, hey, you got to be ready to be doing something for a prolonged period of time. And your body goes, great, I can do that. And the super long run on the Wednesday, or uh, not on the Wednesday, excuse me, the Saturday, which... Um, mimics the race day builds every week 
going with the exception of a couple weeks before race day where you dial it back in order to recover some. But in order to remind your body, like, coming up, you got to be ready this morning of this day of the week in order to deliver at the maximum capacity possible because we're going to demand something pretty intense from you. And then that week and a half, two weeks before the race, you're really pulling back a lot. And things aren't as intense and the distances are much shorter to let your body know, hey, there's something wacky going on. And your body takes in all of these stimuli and says, hey, where's our explosive movement? Hey, where's our endurance movement? And that pre-race week, I got pretty agitated. Because the running thing really helps me to decompress from a lot of the stress that I have in my life. And my body was looking for that outlet and it didn't have one. And what's interesting is the way that manifested was my body was so on the edge of like, let's, let's, like, let's use this energy. There's, there needs to be some, some explosive movement here. There needs to be some endurance movement here. And you let all that out during the race. And that's what allows you to sustain that relentless pace for a long period of time because you've trained your body that it's normal and then blocked it up a ton and then released it. And I find it really fascinating that it worked in that way. Um, but uh, I don't think it's possible to do the kind of thing that I did in... Um, achieving such a high finish at such a well-attended race uh, without really, really awesome recovery and really, really awesome nutrition because the training will only get you so far. If you're not sleeping very well and you're not stretching very well, I don't think that you can deliver as much on the pavement as you'd like to or on the trail as you'd like to. And so um, a lot of people give me some weird looks when I tell them I stretch for 45 minutes to an hour every day. And they think I do it all at one time. And they say like, oh, I don't have time for it. But once you've done that for a while, you make time for it because you feel amazing. <laughs> it, it, it's one of those things where it's like after having a really good steak for the first time, you never want to go to back to having bad steak ever again. And so uh, the way this manifests is uh, a couple of sun salutations in the morning in order to warm my body up for the day, especially before a longer run. A little bit of dynamic stretching before each of my runs, which is about 5 to 10 minutes. And then uh, a nice, solid 30-minute session of uh, latent stretches before bed where I'm just focusing on lengthening the muscles particularly in my legs and hips, as much as possible in order to really, really relieve them of the lactic acid buildup and allow for maximal decompression as I sleep. And part of uh, why stretching is so important also, yeah, I mean, you're getting rid of lactic acid, which is really important because that's what usually results in soreness. But the other thing is if you activate muscles, especially uh days you've used them or days after you've used them uh, that targets blood flow to those muscle areas and when there's more muscle or when there's more blood flow to those muscles it allows you to uh, them to recover faster because a lot of the proteins that need to be available and the oxygen that needs to be available is available which is really really great 
and I don't think that people stretch well enough often. And I mean, like, even if you aren't very physically active, I think you could stretch dramatically more often. It's just good for your body and reminds it how it's supposed to activate and reminds your neurons how they're supposed to fire electrically. And so uh, moving to the nutrition thing, um, I know a lot of people who are incredibly skeptical about the way I choose to eat. But I don't think that the achievement that I made in this particular race would have been possible without it. And so what does that look like? Well, uh, honestly, there's a lot of sacrifice to be made in that area. So um, the biggest one is no booze. And part of the reason is I don't think a lot of people understand like the needless amount of carbohydrates that adds to your diet, but also um, how dramatically it dehydrates you. And if you want to recover muscularly very rapidly – you need maximum hydration and optimal hydration. And so that means taking on a lot of practices in terms of making sure your micronutrients are accounted for, but also like abstaining from things that are going to rapidly dehydrate you. Um, and that also means uh, stopping uh, partaking in a lot of salty foods too, which is really difficult because like Cheez-Its and chips are amazing. And cookies are amazing, but sugar and salt in particular really tend to dehydrate your body also. And then uh, to take that a step further, um, sugar is one of the most um, inflaming things you can eat. Like it causes dramatic amounts of inflammation throughout your body. And so if you want to recover super effectively and be nourished super effectively, added white sugar and super sugary things are things that you probably shouldn't be consuming, which is really tough. And it was really interesting seeing what that looked like because uh, during, so I, I officially started to wean off the sugar when um, I think I was in week seven of training, which would have been in early August. And the thing that was fascinating about that was um, <laughs> I uh, had a busy week of grad school stuff and I was feeling really gross and I had all these commitments and I was starting to really dial up my running and I just felt like I needed some kind of reward. So I went, I, I got like a pint of chocolate milk at the grocery store. It's like, a, hey, Andrew, this is, this is your reward for winning this week. And I had been, um, this, I'd, I'd been off sugar for a few weeks at this point and like, <laughs> Like halfway through it, I thought I was going to hallucinate. The tunnel vision was insane. I felt like I, 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 I was like looking at everything around me so quickly. And then the crash was absolutely immense. It was just absolutely gross. And so going back to uh, a point where I can have stuff like that has felt really, 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 really strange. And it's definitely something I'm going to consume much differently going forward. Uh, but one of the other things I noticed was in cutting out sugar more broadly and eating in a way where it was a lot of uh, sustainably sourced meat, um, pretty lean stuff too. I mean, like I eat a lot of ground turkey and uh, shredded chicken and stuff. Um, but even like pork and beef were in my diet still too. And I ate a lot of fish and a lot of vegetables. But uh, it's on the carbohydrate side of stuff, like where white rice and steel cut oats constitute like as processed carbohydrates as I was willing to eat. 
my body felt absolutely incredible. Um, and I didn't have a lot of energy dips throughout the day because uh, I was eating at pretty consistent times throughout the week. Um, breakfast at almost the same time every morning. Uh, a little later, I like to have breakfast around um, 10, 15, 10, 30. And I eat a pretty big breakfast so that like I can just coach through the rest of my day and not have to worry about stuff, have dinner around 5 and just call it a night. Um, and so I just don't have to worry about eating so much. And doing the meal prep thing was super helpful too. And I made a lot of really amazing lean chilies. Um, over the course of this time, like... I've made chicken chili and turkey chili probably every way you can think of now, which is great for me because chili's like my favorite food in the world. But um, it was just really nice to experiment some and still know that like I was getting like the most wholesome and like uh, beneficial uh, nutrition possible. Uh, but doing that uh, consistently over a long period of time, I think it gets easier once you've started. But in the early stages is definitely really, really uh uncomfortable not necessarily difficult I think uncomfortable is a better word because it's so foreign and if you don't have a dramatic resolve to like always be pursuing um like that next level of quality it gets really difficult but I found the rewards on the music side of stuff to be really beneficial because running in a body that was so well hydrated and so well nourished I just stopped fearing that there were things I couldn't do on my instrument and there's a difference between saying like I have no fear and I can play anything and having no fear to try anything and I was definitely in the latter because I'm I'm definitely not good enough a euphonium player to say that I can play anything ever written for the instrument I can't um but uh one day hopefully I will be able to say that I'm one of those people and Right now, one of the things I've learned is that a body nourished in this way has less fear about the demands that it can put on itself. And that was something that was really, really valuable to learn. And so in planning all of this, um, there was a lot of mental training that was required too. So in... January of this last year, January 2021, I went to physical therapy because I was having this pretty dramatic pain on the outside of my left knee. And after six weeks, in, uh, we isolated it to not a hamstring problem, but an IT band torque caused from uh, my lower back not firing when I uh, made my stride, so when I took a running step. Um, and a lot of people would think like, Andrew, why would your lower back need to fire for that? Well, all of your muscles are connected in some way, and particularly through your core and uh, lower core especially. Um, and for guys, uh, hips and lower back are so neglected, and so are glutes in, in terms of uh, musculature that they've conditioned. Um and this is common across the board for gentlemen especially, um, you need to coach those to fire or you're really liable, especially as you start to run longer distances uh, for pretty severe injury, which is what I had. And so um, it took months to actually get this to fire properly again. Um, I mean, I don't think I was able to run 
three or four miles at a time without some relative discomfort until um, the end of March. And then it was a slow build from there to July. And in the middle of March, I had already decided, like, I'd really like to run a marathon this year. And I knew, based on the research that I had done, the kind of nutrition I would have to maintain, a lot of the stretching that I would need, and that it would take about 16 weeks to get to marathon fitness to be competitive. And it was really frustrating because at the time, I couldn't even run probably 12 miles a week without some discomfort. And um, I'm a pretty impatient personality a lot of the time. And so trying to get there in a way that was doable and sustainable seemed pretty out of reach. And that's where the one step in front of the other becomes the mentality that uh, is necessary to be pursuant to greatness. And it's so wacky now being on the other side of that and having to remind myself daily that like, hey, if you want to get better, it's not about like doing everything today. It's about doing one thing every day for 200 days and then you'll have gotten a lot farther than somebody who just tried to do a lot a couple of days a week for the last couple of weeks. Because it's not about right now. It's about uh, the journey that you're on. And having that perspective is really, really difficult. But so the goal I set for myself was I want to be ready to begin marathon training, which means being able to run about 25 miles a week uh, by mid-July. And I started paying way closer attention to what I was eating and weaning myself off of um, especially processed carbohydrates, but processed sugar especially. And then um, at that point, I uh, was already um, not involved with drinking very often. I think I, I think I've had two drinks this year. Um, and so like getting really low on the inflammation side of things in order to promote maximal recovery for my body. And then I just got really more proactive about stretching and working out in extraordinarily planned increments. And um, adding some weight training into the mix in order to try to promote firing of coordinated muscle groups. And this is where I made the true conversion to kettlebells because I heard a lot about kettlebells. I'd done a lot of research about kettlebells. It was always one of those things where like, oh, I want to get started on that. And then this is where I jumped in because... There was a while where I didn't have great access to gym and I wanted to stay fit and I was doing a lot of pull-ups already, which was great, but like doesn't really help with a lot of other stuff. Um, there was a retailer I'm familiar with that had a sale on kettlebells, so I bought a couple, um, coached myself through a lot of the forms with the 10-pounder that I have and then moved to the 45 to start doing goblet squats and swings and um, deadlift and a couple of other, you know, standard exercises that work on compound muscle groups between, uh, the hips, lower back, mid back and legs. And then, um, I also just started doing more lunges, a couple of body weight squats every day. Um, you know, more, more standard stuff. And I started to regain fitness in my legs exponentially 
and it was really fascinating to see. And so that, on top of very planned running exercises, incredibly specific active recoveries, trying to get um, cold decompression on my legs pretty regularly, um, get hot decompression on my back pretty regularly, sleeping as much as possible, um, not trying to overdo myself mentally so that I was still able to you know, focus on doing stuff and having uh, the motivation and the drive to keep going, that I wasn't feeling burnt out. And, it, and honestly, it takes a lot uh, to prep for those kinds of things, but making those time sacrifices in order to make sure that like you feel optimally driven is really one of the prices of mastery. And once you make those a regular part of your life, it's incredibly difficult to give those up because you realize how awful it feels to not be adequately decompressed. Um, and so getting in contact with those is something I really encourage people to try to do. And that doesn't that doesn't always look like just the nutrition stuff and just the fitness side of stuff. It looks like spending time with friends, like being social, having things to do that aren't work, that aren't projects, have things in your life that you enjoy, whether they're creative or explorative or or whatever things that you enjoy that allow you to unwind from your job or your projects or your work or your homework or your education or your craft or whatever. It's super important. And so while running was part of that for me, um, the undertaking of this race in particular was more a journey of self-proof. I wanted to prove to myself that I had the warrior spirit and had the determination to pursue something that was not available to most people, something that would make me, in part, stand out from the crowd, but more to prove to myself that I had the ability to do something exceptional. Because when you are in a pretty small field, like euphonium players, um, especially when you're starting to get to the like top 1% of euphonium players, like a lot of masters and graduate students are, it's really difficult to feel unique in that way. And like you're capable of something really great because you see so many other people doing things that are really unique and really great. And I wanted to prove to myself that I could do something exceptional that a lot of people would think was exceptional rather than just being able to, you know, play the Cosmo Concerto, which is great, but, like, most people don't know that that's <laughs> that special of an experience. I mean, they can infer that, but they don't know that, you know? And so, uh, in undertaking this race, I wanted to prove that I could do this, but I, I wound up finding a deeper understanding of myself and realizing that I didn't really have to prove anything to anybody and that my experiences are mine to share and that there is a lot of uh, education that I acquired along this way, a lot of knowledge that I acquired along the way. And so all of this knowledge about stimuli for the body and properly uh, fueling it and allowing for amazing decompression and recovery has been really helpful in 
helping me to learn my music better. Because I know for a fact now that if I want to dramatically increase velocity in an etude, I'm better off practicing it five times a day for four minutes and every day going down a little in pace, going at pace from the day before and then accelerating a little and then backing away from it and allowing my brain tons of times to do that subconscious recalculation in order to make sure that it really has itself wrapped around exactly the motions that I want to be executed. Which has been fascinating to learn about. Um, Going back to the mentality thing about this race, though, I wanted to touch on uh, the personal mental coaching that went into it. Um, Pat Sheridan has said a couple of times in recent masterclasses that Uh, One of the prices of greatness is falling in love with the idea of repetition or repetitive practice. And I encountered a version of that this summer with uh, my training because uh, the best place for me to run was at a park about two miles from my house. So I would run to the park. And a lap of the park is around a mile and a half. And so I would get four miles from to and from the park. And then the rest of my miles will be laps of the park. And there's, you have to have an extraordinary amount of mental discipline to go out one day and say, I'm going to run 21 miles and realize that what that means is I'm going to run to the park. I'm going to run about nine laps of the park. And then I'm going to run home from the park especially when a lap is so long. And, I, and I'll be the first to say, I'd rather run nine laps than like 50 laps and go into like a football track or something. But it's still really tough because in the middle of mile six, when the oxygen is really getting to your brain and you feel like you've consumed a substance, even though you haven't, you sometimes forget, am I on mile five? Am I on mile six? Am I on mile seven? I don't know. And having a counter on your phone is really helpful for that. Or if you use Strava or Pacer or something like that in order to keep track of your your distance, that can be really, really helpful. And that's what I wound up doing. Um, But keeping my brain quiet and keeping my brain focused, knowing that there were so many laps, actually was super helpful getting into race day because the race was just down to the halfway point and then back to the finish line. And so not not being able to count laps actually like caused me an issue as much as it like caused me to have an advantage because on the one hand, I saw all of these runners who were passing me around mile three or four or five and I was thinking to myself, wow, I really didn't train as well as I could have. Uh, my pace is so much slower than these people's. This is going to be really weird. And then reminding myself, Andrew, the only person you have to beat is the clock. I set out for this race with a goal of finishing in under four hours. And so that reminder of like, as long as the clock says 3.59, you win. And so in that regard, I I didn't feel terrible. And all of my training indicated that I was going to run the race in probably around 3.55. And so I just kept saying to myself, like, keep at it. This is what you prep for. You're not racing them. You're racing you. You're racing the clock. And uh, not being able to count laps while I was in pursuant day of was really difficult because there wasn't anything grounding me into the environment. 
and I didn't know the trail, so I was so busy looking for the signs that said whether I was going the right way or not. It just felt really weird. And one of the things that I found more helpful in the training than on race day was being able to let my mind wander because on race day I had to be a lot more conscientious of where I was running because it was on a course that I didn't know versus um, during training where I knew how to get I could probably get to the park with my eyes closed I could get around the park with my eyes closed because I have at this point hundreds of reps doing it and so because I had hundreds of reps doing it at some point it felt like it went a lot faster and race day felt like it went really really slow and the early miles in the race especially I think were the hardest especially up until about mile seven because um, when everybody's starting the race at the same time, you have all these variants in paces and you see these people who just fly out the gate and are like off in the distance leaving the pack in the dust. And it's really intimidating, especially for your first race. Uh, and it wasn't until the end of the race that I really hit my stride and I came to understand like why... Um, maintaining a constant pace over a longer period of time is definitely the way to go. Um, and I thought about one of my heroes. Uh, David Beckham, we all know of as one of the greatest soccer players of all time, but if you haven't watched Manchester United a great deal, it's hard to appreciate why. Beckham wasn't the fastest player. The The stereotype of a lot of soccer players is they have a lot of pace and if you've watched a lot of recent international tournaments that they fall around on the ground and uh, roll around aimlessly like Neymar when uh, not much has happened and they really want to pull fouls. Um, Beckham wasn't particularly fast. He's just like the hardest working player ever and his technique and his passing were absolutely incredible. Uh, Beckham was able to maintain his top speed for the entirety of a game, like all 90 minutes. And it was amazing, and it still is. If you, like, uh, when he plays in charity games, or if you go catch, like, uh, old uh, videos of uh, Manchester United in the 90s and early 2000s, I mean, the guy maintains pace for the entire game to a point where it's a little scary. And he's running at the same speed in my, at minute 90 that he is at minute one. And that's what sets Beckham apart. And so all of the clips that make De David Beckham look like he's super, super fast are from the end of the game uh, or the end of games because he's just like got so much stamina still in the tank. And that's what it felt like at the race because maintaining that 75-80% pace the entire time, yeah, it means you're being left at the dust in mile four and five and six. And I felt so powerful at mile 18 and mile 19 and mile 20 and mile 21 and all of the miles at the tail end of the race going into the end because I passed so many people that had passed me in the early miles. And I thought to myself, this is what sustainable training looks like. And it was exhilarating to experience my victory in that way and that resilience and the relentlessness of the pace and of the endurance and the presence of the moment and in the octane that was flowing through my body and breathing the way I was breathing. It was exhilarating and terrifying and I loved it. And it proved to me that that is the way I must pursue my career in as much as 
that is the way I would like to pursue my race. And so refocusing on what that looks like for my career going forward, yeah, I need to make more time for some decompression. And doing a little every day is better than doing a lot once a week. And restructuring that is something that's super important to me because I want to be able to maintain these kinds of things going forward. Uh, One other thing I wanted to touch on was the toll that the race took on my playing. I talked about how there were a lot of aspects that were really, really helpful. Um, But in the early days of coming back to graduate school and doing all this training, my longest run was on Sunday before I moved it to Saturday. And moving it to Saturday was the most necessary change I've made in a long time. And the reason was is because I was operating under this idea that I could run around 20 miles on Sunday morning and be adequately recovered in time for rehearsal at 1 p.m. on Monday. And that's just not true. Um, The level of dehydration you get your body to when you've pushed it to that limit uh, is one that requires almost 48 hours of hardcore recovery if you're going to operate at the best possible levels um, in a situation where you're trying to prep high-quality music with a high-quality ensemble because the level of attentiveness that's required in addition to the level of hydration your body needs to be at for your lips to operate the way they need to just the the level of decompression needs to be there or it's not going to happen very effectively. And that was really tough for me to realize. And it took uh, a lot of days. Uh, it was probably three or four rehearsals of going in and absolutely sucking in order for me to realize, oh, maybe I need more than almost 24 hours to recover from running 20 miles, which sounds like a stupid realization to have to have. That sounds like a common sense thing. Um, But I find that a lot of people, especially people who have at some point in their life operated under a I'll sleep when I'm dead mentality, don't get a great opportunity to understand what that's like or what that feels like or what that means. And so uh, especially in these times of like hyper intensity where I'm trying to run so much and trying to play at such a high level, there needs to be space in between. And that's what led to um, the, the me rescheduling that run that I talked about earlier in the podcast where there's uh, there was a run that was scheduled the day of a major concert and the best day to run was either the day before or the day after. And instead I decided I'm going to do a really light run day of about five miles and sprinkle everything else throughout the week's book ending it in order to make sure this happens. I get all the miles logged, but that I'm operating at the highest possible level. And being judicious about your time commitments is exactly that. And it comes in all sorts of forms, whether it's one you do in the race, whether it's one you do outside the race, and where it comes to committing yourself and your energies into the activities that you are pursuant to. And that was really difficult for me because I'm the kind of person who wants to be able to do everything and wants to have the energy to do everything and wants to be able to just crush life in a way that people look at it and say, wow, that's incredible. And doing that requires you to be a lot more proactive and understanding about your scheduling and your decompression. And if you take anything away from this podcast, um, 
I hope it's fueling yourself optimally through nutrition and hydration is the way to get the best out of your body. And that right now is one tiny step on the winding staircase that is your journey to life and to greatness. There's so much that we can still explore about ourselves and that we're capable of. And I'm really excited to see where folks go going forward. Um, I'm looking to do more content about how I find the nutrition and fitness side of stuff impacts my playing. Um, I'd love to get feedback on that if y'all are interested. So don't be afraid to shoot me a DM on Instagram or if you want to email me, that's cool too. Uh, but be on the lookout for more content like that going forward because it's something I'm finding I'm particularly interested in. And uh, I want y'all to know that like this is really something that is attainable for a lot of folks. I know that sounds really cliche. It's like, oh, anybody can do it. But in reality, what I found is that the most important thing is determination and then whether you're willing to uh, have the discipline to be pursuant to it. And if you do the research and you make a plan and the plan is reasonable and doable, there's nothing you cannot achieve. And so what's next? Um, There's a marathon in town that I'm looking to run maybe sometime in April. I may... uh, Uh, do some podcast recording more proactively about the training process and how that's going and what my nutrition is looking like and how that's changing with some of the things that I'm doing. Um, But right now, I'm really looking forward to um, doing some more experimental music and uh, more high-level performance stuff. I have a recital coming up in December that's all euphonium music I've written, which is really, really exciting. And there's no piano on it. It's going to be wacky and cool in all of the right kinds of ways. And that's going to be live streamed either on YouTube or on Facebook. Uh, hopefully YouTube. I just got to make sure I got the equipment set up for it. Um, but all this is to say, like, you can do all of the things. Um, I'm really frustrated at this idea of, like, jack of all trades, master of none. Because as Minamoto Musashi once said... I learned to master one thing, I've learned to master a thousand. Um, I think drawing an incredibly delineated difference between the two arises when we decide instead of to be a jack of all trades or and a master of none or a master of one trade to be a master of a couple of trades. And there is a supreme amount of delineation and discipline and separation and decompression that must happen if that's something you're looking to do. I hope that today's episode gives you an insight into what some of that might look like. That's all for this week. Thanks so much. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of The Musical Trick Artista, the podcast. You can find us online at mcgowanmusic.com or listen on your favorite podcast platform. You can also visit us at Andrew McGowan on YouTube or Music McGowan on Instagram.